Hear that? No? It's the sound of Valencia Street, which is arguably one of the city's liveliest cultural and restaurant scenes. It's just that it's after 2 a.m., which is last call in San Francisco. Everything's closed. Here's what it sounds like on a major city square in Amsterdam at night. Still not exactly roaring, but Amsterdam has venues that are open 24 hours a day. And it's not a hotbed of crime, noise, and public urination in the early hours. This was all very carefully thought out and planned with the help of a night mayor, a mayor for the night. My name is uh, Merik Milan. I'm based in Amsterdam. I'm a former club promoter, a former night mayor, but uh, nowadays full-time nightlife advocate. Amsterdam, a city about the size of San Francisco, had a problem in about 2012. Residents said it was turning into a stiff, boring, open-air museum that catered to tourists more than people who lived there. And its main drag for nightlife was a mess of bad, drunken behavior late at night. So it tried some new things, including electing a new night mayor. That position, which has existed since about 2003, is for a liaison between night culture operators and city government, who advocates for policies under which a diverse, varied, and engaging night culture scene can flourish. For the economic benefit of jobs and tax revenue, sure. But nightlife advocates both abroad and locally will tell you there's much more to it than that. Arts and culture can innovate and push boundaries in a well-supported nightlife environment. In San Francisco, nightlife could also help the downtown economic core, which has been struggling to come back after the pandemic. Business leaders and Mayor London Breed are hoping that more cultural events, including nightlife, could bring residents and tourists back there. But so far, those proposals don't include many specifics. Local advocates for bars, clubs, and night markets are hoping this city can reinvent the sector, not just go back to how things were before the pandemic destroyed a lot of venues. Reporter Emma Silvers dug into that in a written story which you can find without a paywall at sfchronicle.com sfnext. The night has shown me that the world is much more colorful than where I came from myself. It has shown me that people would have different opinions. But if you are with like-minded souls, you have to really have the ability to reach great heights together. And I really, truly believe that like a culturally diverse nightlife leads to a more uh, social inclusive city and hopefully also equitable. I'm Laura Wenis. This week's fix, the night mayor, someone who paves the way for a thriving cultural and social scene that happens after hours. Getting creative about venue concepts, licensing, curfews, security, and location helped Amsterdam go from open-air museum to a thriving cultural scene. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. Merik Milan is the former night mayor of Amsterdam and now a partner at Vibe Lab, a consultancy pushing for vibrant, diverse nightlife across the world. We talked about his experiences in Amsterdam and what research shows could help revitalize after-hours cultural scenes in cities where the pandemic and local policies have taken a toll. He emphasized that night mayorship is not an executive role. I think what's most important is that we, um, the night mayor um, is an advocacy role, uh, really a spider in the web that sits between city hall, city council and the mayor small business owners like nightclubs and festivals, but also city residents. And we always say is by having a conversation, we can change the rules of the game. 
These days, several dozen cities around the world have nightmare positions or nightlife czars. Some are appointed by public officials, but Amsterdam's nightmare has to win an election. The voting population is split into two parts with equal weight, nightlife practitioners like venue owners and the public. These days, the nonprofit that actually employs the nightmare is funded half by City Hall, half by nightlife businesses. Why did Amsterdam need this position when it first started? What were the confluence of factors here where city government or the public or whoever said, you know, we really need somebody to take this role? It really came from both sides. So it came from a left-wing politician, but also came from the city. But mostly in Amsterdam, people felt that Amsterdam was turning into an open-air museum. (laughs) Um, Also, already back then, already that tourism was taking over. Now, 20 years later, tourism has grown 5-6% every every year. So you can speak about mass tourism nowadays. But that was what really what the the people in nightlife uh, felt. That, you know, the the city was clamping down and having... Like, the Dutch really love laws. And they love to find, like, a little rule for everything. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) And some people, some even some... Uh, city councillors has or let's say deputy mayors have claimed that the Dutch electronic music scene or dance scene and festival scene is so professional because of all their little laws. Ooh, what do you think of that claim? Yeah, that was a fierce debate at some point when this lady um, uh, dropped this. But anyway, there were also some city councillors that really felt like, hey, we don't really know what's happening at night. We need to have somebody that understands, you know, like, and that's something which is so striking always. Really often people in City Hall and definitely in, in national government, the last time they were engaged with nightlife, was when they were rolling over each other in a Fred Hauder and in their student period, you know, and the last memory was, oh, uh, you know, everybody's um, getting out of control and experimenting with alcohol for the first time. That is the Mm -hmm. for the most people in government or in high level positions, the last thing they remember about nightlife. We want city governments to make smart policies to improve the quality of life for all residents, not only the people that are young and want to go out, for all residents. And what you have to realize is that all over the world, many, many of the policies that are concerning the night, they're archaic. They're more than 100 years old and they never had Mm. got, got an update. One thing worth noting about the approach that Amsterdam took is that during Merrick Milan's time as a nightmare, alcohol related violence decreased by 20 percent. And reports of nuisance, bad behavior like public urination went down 28%. Some of that may have been related to structural changes like permitting and location and programming at venues. But Amsterdam also started staffing public squares with what they call hosts, unarmed people who could give information to visitors and keep an eye on things. I think it was a big learning from uh, one of my visits to Colombia, where we were invited by the mayor from uh, Cali in Colombia, a very uh, violent city. It was during a meeting with his police commander, and they really said, like, you know, the solution to safety is not more police. And if a police commission in a Latin American city says that also about the social structures there are at play and the community that is at play, you know, and that is where safety begins but it's also of course of alcohol and substances and etc can we talk a little bit more about alcohol because i'm thinking you know about neighbors residents and safety and cleanliness and all the things you were just describing nightlife does have a somewhat unfortunate association with crowds of drunk people who are not on their best behavior 
But in theory, you could have all kinds of culture hubs open late. It doesn't have to be just bars or clubs or where people are getting drunk. How do you create an environment where nightlife can flourish that's interesting to all kinds of people, all ages of people, not necessarily just for drinking? Yeah, no, 100%. We really believe that cities should steer away from, you know, alcohol-infused nightlife or nightlife that is very much based on drinking culture. Uh, what you see also from reports or research that have been done when you speak to, you know, younger age demographics is they're all asking for a diversified offer, not only looking for a bar where you can drink. For example, in Amsterdam, you have the... Um, Amsterdam Dance Event, which is our biggest electronic music conference and festival. I think the conference has like 9,000 delegates and the music festival, which is taking place in in the whole city for five days in more than 500 venues. I think there's 400,000 people coming over those five days every year. And what's interesting out of the police data, it has shown that, and it is multiple years in a row, that for the police, it's not busier than a regular Saturday night. So what does that mean if people come to see a show, to see a DJ, to see a program, to see a live act, to see an art installation, uh, they won't be rolling down the street at the end of the night. And we also really believe that, uh, yes, entertainment districts, they were set up in the past, of course, often to transit to transform formal industrial areas or rundown areas. And we believe that you should spread out nightlife more over the city. An approach that we have done and, and, and installed successfully in Amsterdam was that the 24-hour licenses, at these venues. But uh, to get this 24-hour license, and that was really radical about this approach. That for the first time we looked at the creative content the venue was producing instead of, you know, is it in the center of the city? Does it have four walls or roof and a bouncer in front of the door? You could only mm. get the license if you're more in the outskirts of the city. That or that's the plan. That was the plan in Amsterdam. Venues applying for the 24-hour license also had to pitch a concept that went beyond the usual club scene. A big former school or warehouse could have multiple uses. They might have a bar, but also a round-the-clock gym, a co-working space, and or a gallery. So they're really like cities within a city, a place where you can go for a multifest of activities. And also, I think what the good part about it is, is that also the neighbors that are living around these venues um, they also benefit from the fact that the venue is in their neighborhood because it has all. It brings more livelihood to the neighborhood. It, you know, uh, it has it has all kind of other kinds of functions instead of only being a raving music venue or nightclub uh, in the weekends. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you brought up the 24-hour permits because I absolutely want to talk a bit more about that. This is. You called it radical, but for a city like the one that we're in, this is very radical because last call here is 2 a.m. and transit out of this city kind of stops at midnight. I mean, technically speaking, it goes on later than midnight, but practically speaking, a lot of people are are planning to get out of here before midnight. What else do you need in place in order for a 24-hour permit system like this to work? Yeah, so of course, uh, every city has their has their own challenge. We developed a methodology uh, which is called the Creative Footprint. The Creative Footprint is an, say, a nightlife impact study in which we gather a lot of data on uh, music venues, mobility and transportation hubs, but also demographics of neighborhoods, etc. And what we have seen out of the, this research, we have done it in uh, New York, Berlin, Tokyo, Stockholm, and two exciting cities, Montreal and Sydney, coming up this year. You see that there is um, a really strong need for uh, public transport and uh, nightlife establishments and also a younger age demographic often co-locate to each other. 
we are, of course understand that not everybody has that infrastructure and it's difficult to develop. If there's no public transport, then either the city or private businesses could figure out another way to get people home affordable. But it's not only mm-hmm. about the people going out, it's also the people that work at night because many people that also work at night and not only in bars and restaurants, but also of course hotels and hospitals, etc., they also need to get home safely and in an affordable way. I should note that State Senator Scott Weiner is trying, again, to push back the last call cutoff. He and others in the state legislature have tried this a number of times in recent years. His latest bill would allow a handful of cities, including San Francisco and Oakland, to change their rules so bars and clubs could stay open until 4 a.m. Milan says one of the things that happens when you have 24-hour permit systems is that the night ends a bit more naturally. Rather than having crowds of drunk people flooding the streets when the bars and clubs shut down, people leave or arrive at their own pace in smaller groups. Yeah, no, that is an issue that is happening basically all over the world, everywhere in all the cities that we work or that we collaborate with people. So first of all, I think a 24-hour license in Amsterdam is always for venues, and that's why we ask them about their programming. So it's always for venues that are where alcohol is not the center of attention. But then step two is also, you know, if you don't have this last call, then uh, there's also a more gentle flow. People, you know, because also you, ha- you can say something like you're not going to hang out in front of the door anymore and cause trouble because this is often where noise, antisocial behavior, uh, alcohol related violence happens when people have nowhere to go. When people have nowhere to go, no way to get home, then is when the real issues occur. And that's also what was brought to light by an independent research of the of the 24-hour licenses or evaluation from the city department, is that when we spread out people overnight, we actually have less incidents. But we need to have operators that are also willing to take care of the outside space. So that's also part of this permit process that the operators is not like to the doorstep and when you're outside, it's not my problem anymore. You know, everybody takes care mm-hmm. of the neighborhood. So, you know, safety and well-being, I think it really also comes through community and community service. You've been listening to my conversation with Mirik Milan, a partner at the nightlife consultancy Vibe Lab and former night mayor of Amsterdam. When we come back, we'll hear about how a vibrant night scene gives people a reason to stay in a city and which cities are doing nightlife right. I hate to say this, but it's definitely Berlin. (laughs) More on why he doesn't like to admit that after the break. I'm talking with Merik Milan, former nightmare of Amsterdam and now a promoter of city policies and novel approaches that allow cultural venues and events to flourish in the dark. So you are not nightmare anymore. Now you have this consulting agency helping other cities figure out how to manage and grow their nighttime scenes. You've talked a bit about research looking at nightlife scenes. How do you evaluate a city's nightlife and where do you start when it comes to making it better? Many decisions in cities often are based or made because on the economic impact of an industry. Mm-hmm. So just to give you uh, some numbers, like for example, the economic impact of the electronic music, so dance music industry in the Netherlands is like close to 1 billion uh, euros on a yearly basis. But wow. um, yeah, that's it's quite, it's quite insane for such a small country. But uh-huh. um, when the pandemic hit, Nobody was talking about, oh, there is like, you know, evaporating uh, 1 billion euro of economic impact. If you would, if, if you would lose 200 million in agriculture or fishing or whatever, 
you know, this, the, 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 then the parliament would be overrun by protesters, etc. So also the night has this problem that often, you know, people in parliament or in, in central government, um, they don't want to stand up for the night because we're, the night is still demonized. It's still, you know, and nothing good happens after midnight. There's still, you know, this old fashioned way of looking at the night. So that's the issue. So when we research the urban night or the impact, we really very much look at the amount of creative space a city has. And when I say creative space, I mean, music venues, nightclubs, incubators, you know, all kinds of venues that have a program. Because when you have a lot of these venues, you also will be attractive for people that, first of all, like to go there, which is great, mm -hmm. of course, for businesses and companies that they want to set up shop in your city. Uh, but it's also, of course, for this creative talent, you know, the city will be attractive for creatives and, and creative industries. And that's for many cities, definitely in, in Europe, that's still a big driver. So looking at the amount of music venues, but also looking at, okay, what is the house the city set up? We really believe that, you know, this this cultural impact, it goes beyond the economic impact. Of course, you also should look at the economic impact and tourism, et cetera. But I think it's really valuable to build policies to protect creative and cultural space. I know, for example, that in San Francisco, of course, which has had such a vibrant LGBTQ plus uh, queer community and small spaces, and they, of course, have all been, or many of them have been priced out, what I've heard from mm -hmm. my friends and partners in, in, in San Francisco. It's interesting to hear you talk about the people who might be attracted to nighttime culture, because I think about people leaving San Francisco, what I usually hear is it's the cost of living. And, well, I don't have to go to my office here anymore, so I don't need to live in this extremely expensive city. And I think that a lot of our policies have focused on how do we get people to come back to offices. And I haven't heard that much about, well, what is the city offering besides a home and, and a workplace? Yeah, so that's interesting. Huh? So cities or city governments always want to develop the city. The business model of cities is always to develop the land develop the ground because that's where they make their most taxes and pay for a lot of other services the city has so mm -hmm. the business model of the city is always working against the creators and creative communities etc and and that's i think what's what happened of course is now the you know san francisco has developed so far and bay area and everywhere and and the prices are so high that you end up with monoculture so only people that can afford it and becomes it becomes more 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 boring you know there's less uh, activity so that's also you know if you want to be in competition then also having this vi cultural vibrancy is a very big part of your attractiveness and mm -hmm. i think slowly the people start to understand it but now it's also important that the cities understand it and but not only understand it but also dare to act on it yeah. when i say dare to act on it is you know shaping policies that making sure that you know an x percentage of a new building should has a has a cultural activity and even better uh, think about you know how can you change policies when it comes to either licensing or other activities so that it's more uh, viable for operators to start a new music venue or nightclub san francisco has been trying to figure out how to support entertainment and cultural venues during the pandemic Aside from trying to push back closing time, there have been a couple other efforts, like permits that allow parklets to turn into temporary music venues. And there's a proposal in the works to make it easier for restaurants and bars to sell food and drinks at street fairs. I understand you're involved with something called the Global Nightlife Recovery Plan. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, for sure. So uh, you, when the, when the pandemic hit, um, we everybody was like holding on to their chairs, like, oh, what is going to happen? And mm-hmm. um, the first thing we we felt is that we really want to share information. And yeah, what we did and turned out to be very interesting uh, is that um, Lutz Leisingring, who is the spokesman of the Berlin Club Commission and also my partner in Vibe Lab, we are very much, as I explained, very much rooted in advocacy work. So that's always what we what we want to do. You know, that that's so important for us. Um, so we started the WhatsApp group and we just plugged in all the nightmares, all the phone numbers of people that were working in nighttime <laughs> governance around the world. Nice. And that group uh, grew really fast. And when we were, everybody was sharing information with each other and, and, um, and we realized, hey, we have the information. We also have, you know, a lot of people that are scientists and working on planning an urban uh, nighttime. There was, you know, uh, there was a white paper coming out with different ideas, strategies and, and policies. And we shared as an open source, as a resource to the rest of the world. A really a lot of policies were or ideas were brought together on you know a nighttime transportation and safety and people that work at night but also on uh, designing the public space on how to make it more safe and everybody picks what they need because the local context is always different uh, but we all want the same you know we want a s- safe and vibrant night social and, and, and equitable and we just want to build better cities and this all happened on whatsapp <laughs> no well it started on whatsapp but, but <laughs> luckily it, it ended it ended on, unfortunately on on video calls of course ah, well all right <laughs> okay video call live yeah no well we're all used to it now like yeah yeah but, <laughs> It seems like urban thinkers and planners at a global level are starting to take more interest in nightlife. Milan's consultancy, Vibe Lab, was part of a panel discussion at the United Nations World Urban Forum recently, the first time nightlife was on the agenda at this event. The focus was on safety, inclusivity, and equality, especially with the needs of women and gender minorities in mind. So... One thing you said earlier I wanted to circle back to is nightlife and club culture and and things like that, they can be exclusive, which is something that Amsterdam is grappling with and I think holds true in other cities too. What works to foster an inclusive, diverse, boundary-pushing kind of environment in night culture? As a follow-up on Global Nighttime Recovery Plan, we will be releasing Nighttime Manifesto. And one of the things that really bugs me is is the fact that people often don't like me that I say this, but you see that everywhere in the world, there's always like a homogenic group that is owning venues and holding permits, etc., it's not diverse and definitely not inclusive. That is something that you see in many, many cities around the world. I was engaged with um, the DIY space project from uh, Long Winter and the city of Toronto. I think very Toronto is always very forward with their with their diversity, inclusion, equity uh, policies. And it was really about thinking, how do we make sure that uh, we open up spaces and buildings for people that usually don't get access or don't have the possibility of running their own space. And that's something that we are very passionate about and think, okay, that that's something that we would hope to change in the future. What are some cities where you think really creative, interesting, clever ideas are being implemented? Does anyone stand out as doing this right? 
Uh, yeah, I, like <laughs> I hate to say this, but it's definitely Berlin. <laughs> the reason, the reason. <laughs> Why do you hate to say it? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's actually a fun story. Um, the the reason, one of the reasons why the mayor of Amsterdam and I, myself, and the, and the people um, uh, that helped bring the twenty four hour licenses together was because it was 2011, 2012. and there was like a, you know, and there were a lot of creators moving from Amsterdam to Berlin. And mm. uh, people were always saying, yeah, yeah, Amsterdam is great, but what about Berlin? And the mayor and I, we both like, we he was definitely really fed up and I as well, because I saw all these cool, great creative musicians, artists, producers. So I saw them all move to Berlin. Uh, and and he was very annoyed by that and said, okay, but what does Berlin have? Oh, and one of this one of the things is that Berlin doesn't have a curfew, you know. And the other thing is, of course, that Berlin has a lot of affordable space. So and mm. it, that's that combination of the creative community, affordable space, and the right policies which are in place, you know. And I think that like Berlin has been a cultural hotspot, definitely also even, you know, after the First World War, after the Second World War, and of course, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it has been a pinnacle of culture. And But also because Berlin is, is for, for people, I, I assume that many people don't know that, but it's also in the middle of nowhere, basically. There's no harbor, there's no, <laughs> there's no big industry. So they really had to embrace also culture as being one of their drivers. And, uh, and Berlin has installed many very interesting policies, to name a few. Because of the great work the club commission in Berlin did and, and my, my business partner Lutz Leitzering did, it was they have now a soundproofing fund that's 2 million euros per year that is invested. Yeah, that is that is amazing amount. 2 million euros a year by lump sums of 50, 50K people can apply or venues, nighttime venues can apply for and you can soundproof parts of your building change an exit exit from one uh, from one side of the building to the other side so that your you know your guests leave not next to, to the next door neighbors but in, in the other alley investment in sound systems there are a few venues very legendary and very uh, influential that really shaped identity of that city that were able to stay in the location that they had because they could invest in their sound system in a way that it's very focused and only focused on the dance floor and that mm. the sound you know noise cancelling insulation so that is one of the very progressive policies the investment in uh, you know uh, seeding money like uh, micro funding all kinds of, of things related uh, to music so the mu- music board um, yeah so berlin really gets it not every city can be berlin but milan says that's no reason to shy away from thinking big or advocating for change what I really think it's important is that often when we speak about these kinds of topics or we uh, we speak about what we have accomplished in Berlin or in, in Amsterdam or other cities around the world, people always say, yeah, but you guys are, you know, like you're light years away. We could never can reach that, blah, blah. But that's not the case. I think that really nightlife operators, people, people in scene, creatives, people that, that, you know, you have to unify your voice because of city resident groups really often have a very strong, strong grip on city councils uh, because they have access, you know, so make sure you get access, make sure that you educate not only like people in, in, in city hall or in other places about the value of the night, but also your own community. Yeah? You make sure that people are aware of the, the, the opportunities there are as well. And also create awareness, you know, 
uh, bring people together. Often it starts with just organizing a roundtable and sitting together and thinking about, okay, what do we want to improve? How how do we unify our voice? How do we make ourselves heard? How do we, you know, how do we make sure that this, that somebody is going to put up this bill that actually going to change something, you know? And, and, and you start a WhatsApp group. Start a WhatsApp group, 100%. <laughs> start a WhatsApp group and start figuring out what is your manifesto? What is like the 10 points that you that you want to achieve and who who can you partner with? You know how who can you how can you advocate with? So, you know, don't don't think it's it's a lost cause. Start now because maybe, you know, in in a couple of years time you you see that your scene has improved and that's so valuable to fight for. Merik, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and and explaining all this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I hope to visit uh, San Francisco in the near future. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Fixing Our City. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Thanks to the Dutch YouTube channel Follow My Travels for audio of the Amsterdam nightlife scene. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. Next week on Fixing Our City, hear from a guy who volunteers hours of his free time to live tweet San Francisco hearings about housing. Study after study shows that that people who tend uh, public comment are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly older, overwhelmingly own their own home. Next time on Fixing Our City.